This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What is going on, Wildcatters? This week, we sat down with David Forsberg with Ascent Energy Ventures. We dove into his 15 years of experience deploying capital into investments and how he's leveraging that experience to invest into oil and gas tech startups now. We haven't had too many venture capitalists on the show lately, so it was pretty refreshing and a lot of fun for us to record. Really quickly, before we get into the episode, this episode is brought to you by TopTal, and we are super excited to partner with these guys. So if you don't know what TopTal is, TopTal is an exclusive network of top freelance software developers, designers, finance experts, product managers, and project managers in the world. So what's different about TopTal is the rigorous screening process and white glove matching service to help you find exactly what you're looking for. Hiring top talent is always a challenge. It's hard to find the right people for the job in time for important projects. For new startups, time is of the essence. And trust me when I say you can't afford to make any bad hires. Finding the right people to help you turn your vision into a reality is probably the hardest part of running a startup. But TopTal is not just for startups. It's also used by a lot of the biggest companies in the world. So if you're looking for some freelance help uh, with your latest project or want to hire some of the best, go check out TopTal. We put a referral link in the show notes to help you get started or just reach out to us directly and we'll put you in touch. What's going on, Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode. Colin, who we got today? We got David Forsberg from Ascent Energy Ventures. David, what's going on, man? Nothing. Great to be here, fellas. Yeah. Well, thanks you, uh, for coming in town. I mean, well, you're you're based out of Denver, right? Correct. Okay. He came in town for Sarah Week, and then Sarah Week got canceled, and That's so now he's awful. here for a little. But at least you're not going to get coronavirus from Sarah Week. No. Correct. He'll be healthy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now he's taking. You know what's a, crazy? Uh, actually, in the news today, I mean, this is going to be a little old by the time he goes out, but uh, South by Southwest actually canceled their conference due to coronavirus but the ceo came out today and said this hurt them so bad that they don't know if they're gonna be able to survive and come back next year well wow i imagine i mean think about how much money and time millions you're in a big company that's your business right and then a week before i mean same with sarah week a week before you announce that you're canceling it i mean i imagine the ramifications are devastating for that yeah i took the the cost to attend my uh, times the number of attendees. And I think it's like 40 plus million dollars of revenue that IHS Oof. misses from Sierra Week. Just gone. Just gone. Not including any other expenses. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, so now you're here for a little mini vacation. Uh, the, the flight and hotel wasn't refundable. So you thought you'd, you know, come take a vacation. Well, spend I some time on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, <laughs> so tell us a little bit about uh, Ascent Energy Ventures and what you guys are doing. And then we'll dive into your background a little bit. Sure. We're a venture capital fund focused on uh, companies that are asset light and the energy technology space focused on digital uh, and automated technology stack. Uh, we, we do oil and gas, uh, ener- traditional energy. Uh, we also do next-gen energy or look at deals from there and then the water energy nexus. So those are kind of our three sub-silos. Cool. So obviously, you know, oil and gas startups podcast, we interface with a lot of tech companies. Uh, we've had several, what VCs have we had on, Jake? We've had Blue Bear. I was actually going to make the comment. I think it's Blue Bear. And Donovan Ventures. Oh, and Donovan. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you're the first one we've had in a while. And I was thinking to myself, I was like, man, are people just dodging us? Do, do VCs <laughs> and private equity guys just not want to get on the show? Yeah. We haven't had a lot of capital guys on here. So this will be a, and the a funny good thing show. Is, I've been actively pursuing them too. And you know who you are. I've been reaching out to like five different firms and they're like, yeah, we love everything you guys do. And they're huge supporters. And I'm like, come on the show. And it's 
crickets. They're scared to come crickets. on. They're scared. They're intimidated by they're, you guys. They're, they're shy. <laughs> Maybe. So, so like how many people listen to the podcast? About a, at least <laughs> two billion at least. I don't know. Two billion. <laughs> so David, let's start kind of at the genesis of your career in oil and gas. You know, how did you get into oil and gas? How'd you get into energy? Um, let's start there. Sure. So uh, I grew up in Denver. I went to the University of Colorado and I eventually moved to Chicago and worked for a gentleman named Joe Ritchie. Joe uh, is a famous investor and he ran the largest options trading firm in the world for a period of time called Chicago Research and Trading. Very interesting guy, very smart guy. How'd you land that? Uh, I'm a guy in, I met in Denver, started working for him and brought me out there. Okay. And so with Joe, uh, it was a great experience. We uh, developed uh, what were called execution algorithms. So algorithms to buy and sell US equity stocks. So a mutual fund says, I want to buy a million shares of IBM. It would come to us and our algorithm would go into the market and buy that order. Uh, we built that from zero to about 100 million shares a day of business. And it was white labeled by most of Wall Street. And so that business was eventually sold to a firm called SunGuard and it exists today. We then said, hey, we're pretty good at building these execution algorithms that build investment algorithms. So we started a team of about four of us started building investment algorithms and we did well. We managed those from about 2007 to 2013. From there, I had an opportunity to, when I, when I was in college, I interned for this Secretary of Energy, Spencer Abraham, and I always was interested and intrigued by energy markets. In fact, our, our public portfolio of long short uh, investment algorithms, which is about $100 million, was predominantly oil and gas stocks. So uh, I had met a senior policy advisor there named Wade Murphy. His grandfather founded Murphy Oil. And so I started. Small little company. Yep. Yeah. So I started working with him at his family office, which okay. he moved from uh, El Dorado, Arkansas, to Denver. And we had a small mid-con company and uh, small EMP company, stuff that didn't fit in the Murphy Oil Company when it went public in 1952. And so really interacted, and that was my first real direct experience in oil and gas. We developed our investment thesis in about 2016, 2017. Trends that I saw um, in the automation of financial markets were coming to industrial sectors, and particularly E&P. And so we decided to redeploy some capital to the energy technology sector. We call it tech catting. So similar to you got <laughs> your name. Um, and that's how we really got started and started investigating companies and, and really refining our investment thesis around 2017. And uh, in July, uh, separated, that was called Source Rock uh, Energy Ventures. And in July, separated and, and launched Ascent Energy Ventures. Can we talk a little bit about in 2016, this time frame when you were seeing the automation of you know financial markets and then you're wanting to take those same technologies apply them to industrial applications can you kind of unpack that a little bit you know what are some what are some examples when you talk about you know automation and financial markets and the synergies that you see between that and energy yeah i don't know that i see synergies but i see trends and the trends are that you need to do more with less. And all of these industries across the board are starting to adopt these things. And, and other industries, financial markets, media, airlines are, are far more down that path than the industrial sectors. And th there are a number of reasons for that, and specifically oil and gas. And so in 20, end of 2014, call it 2015, uh, as we know, crude oil prices fell from over 100 to less than 30 and over a relatively short period of time. 
at a hundred dollar barrel, there's zero incentive to get efficiency gains. Mm-hmm. At forty dollar a barrel, there's huge incentive to start uh, looking around and adopting efficiency gains. Other trends in the space were. There's a generational shift. It's often called the great crew change. Mm-hmm. And there's a general change in from pushing away technology to pulling forward technology. And so those kind of macro trends were, were influencing the oil and gas sector. The oil and gas sector describes itself as the least digitally advanced sector in the world, okay, behind the public sector. And so there's huge opportunity to just get up to parity, let alone uh, advance. It also happens to be the global feedstock of the economy. Uh, everything that we do takes energy. And so there's opportunities there uh, from a global capex. So there's money there to become digitally advanced. And I think that the timing is just uniquely positioned for the sector. Yeah, I got into it a few years ago with a guy from IBM on the very topic of companies aren't incentivized at $100 oil to become more efficient and adopt new technologies and lower price environments, encourage that. And he said, no, that's not how it is at all. I said, this doesn't make sense. I mean, when you have an oil company and you have hundred dollar oil, they'll say, fuck it, we'll drill another oil well. Exactly. That they're not worried about new technology, right? Exactly. So I think it was really correlated that, okay, 2015, 2016, you've started to see this rise in digital technology technology since that point to say, hey, how can we become more efficient and scale across our assets without increasing our GNA? The answer is through digital technologies, right? So absolutely. Yeah, that's um and you know, we're we're starting to obviously oil pr- prices have crashed here this week, you know, on Sunday going down to thirty dollars and you start to see it again. I mean, we're, we've already been operating in a low price environment and then you have a twenty five percent reduction in commodity prices. And the only way to operate these assets is you have to become more efficient. You have to do more with less. And I, I would, I would venture to put my money on most EMPs, at least the ones that I've interfaced have probably more barrels of oil in their data cabinets or in their file cabinets per se, from the data that they already have rather than any of the oil that's in the ground on any of their leases currently. And so there's a lot of things that you can do, a lot of different technologies that you can deploy, especially when it comes just to basic data management. Like these guys have no clue how to manage data properly. And for some reason, also on top of that, it seems like every, I don't know, let's say mid cap and above oil and gas company uh, thinks that they're also a software development firm. Yeah, totally different cultures right there. (laughs) There, There's um, so in the oil and gas space, and rightfully so, it's an engineering culture of zero failure. Okay, we 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 cannot fail. Whereas the technology space is a totally different culture, smaller budgets, smaller operating teams, uh, where fail fast is more of the mantra. Mm-hmm. And those cultural shifts do not exist together within the same company. If, if you are an EMP company and you want to develop a bunch of technology, the best way to do it is to create a separate entity or a separate group that is not underneath the same cost structure, the same ethos uh, as a major EMP company. Yeah. Let's talk about some like just really basic things. This is not even having to talk with oil and gas specific applications yet. Let's just talk about basic stuff that, that an organization should have. You know, we've set up a few different companies and there's always like this little toolbox that we go to. First thing being Slack. Have you ever seen an ENP on Slack? I've seen one ever. <laughs> I, I would believe that. Yeah. And so if you guys don't know what Slack is, Slack is communication. If you guys are communicating internally via email at any of your companies, you're wrong. Okay. It when just I, is not efficient. When I went to InVenture, 
everything was done through email. All communication was done through email. And there was this old man, his name was Jerry and, and Jerry had to be 65, 70 years old. And he was the one guy championing for, we need an instant messaging system. And he's like, I've been trying to tell these guys that we need some type of messaging system and they yep. won't get one. They do it all through email. And it's like even basic things like that. And it's, it's, it's so simple, but it's so powerful because now you go from being completely all over the place with email to having structured chats with everybody internally. So if it's not Slack, it's Yammer, it's Microsoft Teams. So if you guys are listening and you don't have that at your organization, start asking, start asking around or deploy something like that. Second thing would be, I think most companies don't even have anything to capture what I would consider to be your knowledge graph, right? So we've used a tool called Notion, and this is like the company wiki. This, this includes logins to SaaS tools. This includes processes and procedures. This includes how to do this and how to do that. This is basic note-taking. And I've seen this time and time again. You go sit with an engineer and all of his notes are essentially on paper, which is great. I have a notebook here in front of me and I take a lot of notes on paper too. But a lot of that knowledge when you were talking about the great crew change completely disappears whenever these guys retire. Yeah, correct. And how to do their jobs. And why did you change out the ESP on well ABC out in this field? We don't know. We have no clue, right? So communication needs to be sped up. The knowledge needs to actually be captured somewhere. What else? What else am I missing, Colin? I don't know. Probably a lot. <laughs> like, like they didn't even have CRM. A lot of them don't even have CRM platforms. Exactly. So you talk about like a CRM platform for, you know, a well. Yeah. Like think about it. You can go pull up well one and you can see the life history. You know, you can see everything that's happened to that well. That That would be... Yeah, extremely valuable. Absolutely. David Ramson was the first one that I'd actually seen on the ENP side that used a CRM for deal flow. And so they would yep. put everything to come in. They would evaluate the deals. They put it into certain statuses. All the communication is tracked around that deal. And that's how they were able to actually do things remotely. I've never seen that in another ENP. No, they hire more people has always been the solution. Yeah. And and that that is changing. Yeah. The, the other thing, too, that I think everybody needs to realize is that people talk these these buzzword terms, machine learning and AI. OK, let's just let's just toss those aside for right now. Mm -hmm. And let's just look at the technology stack that enables machine learning okay, and, and insights from there. And we have to make that investment in the technology stack first before you can start moving that direction. And in financial markets, the data comes in as numbers. It's, it's highly digitized before you even start doing any sort of algorithmic or, or machine learning on it. And in ENP, it just doesn't happen that way. So we yeah. have to start developing the technology stack and getting the information in the door so that it can be analyzed and gain insights from. Right now, uh, we, we don't even do that. Yeah, data for machine learning to work, you have to have clean data sets. And so Correct. it works in very isolated incidents, something such as like what Ambience built to where they are also the data source themselves and they're able to do some machine learning on how to optimize uh, whatever the Lyft system may be, right? It's different when you're dealing with something, say, like production data, where you're reliant on maybe maybe a SCADA system, but really most EMPs don't really have any kind of reliable SCADA systems. You're reliant on manual input from pumpers who are going out there, gauging tanks, reading meters, fat fingering the stuff in, and you're expecting machine learning to come in and tell you some crazy insights on something that's probably not true or accurate in the first place. Yeah, and a PDF is not... A digital format you know yeah, it is, it is, that is probably the worst digital well, it's funny format. because this company from israel reached out to me the other day um i don't want to butcher their name but i think it was called airbot aerobotics and jake and i had this idea 
listen to this. It sounded fucking crazy at the we, time. We had to have talked about it on the podcast because <laughs> we probably <laughs> built it to probably a go team. find it somewhere. But you know, we had these little stripper wells up in uh, Oklahoma, and so we weren't able to go check on them every day. And you know, we had an old man pumper that we paid very little money to. And it always seemed like our wells were down and we weren't aware of it. And we're like, how cool would it be if you had an automated drone and it had its own little garage out on the lease and every day it would deploy and it would take a video, process it as a GIF and then transmit it back to you so you could see, hey, my saltwater disposal well is down, the pump's not operating or this pump jack's not uh, you know, turned on, et cetera, like a Roomba et for a well. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. So like, like Roombas do all this. Why couldn't you do it with a, with a drone that was completely automated? So this company hits me up and I think their last round of funding was 30 million and they've designed this, it's a box and the drone comes out, goes and runs its mission. It can change its own battery inside the box, depending on the uh, mission that it's deployed for. And so I send it to one of my buddies. I'm like, Hey, check this out. He's a saltwater disposal operator. It's like, check this out. It's pretty cool. He's like, Oh, that looks cool. He's but call me old school. I'll just run with my pumpers. And I'm like, I know what I'm telling you. This drone, he can do it for <laughs> you. This drone has a garage. Come yeah. on. But yeah, that's yeah. So that's a, a hurdle to adoption. But I, I think that the people who have that kind of attitude in general will uh, fall behind. They'll compound capital less than their peers. Mm-hmm. And next thing you know, uh, they'll look around and say, how do they get so far advanced? How do they how do they buy so many more assets? How do they operate so many more assets with 30% less headcount? How does that happen? And it's because they adopt or are open to adoption of these small uh, technology solutions. Here's like a few million dollars in free consulting. So if you're an ENP OFS company, if you want to look at your any of your processes where data comes from, find out where it really, really comes from and whose hands it actually passes through, and then figure out a way that you can automate that because you don't need to hire more people just to manipulate and clean data and put things into an accounting system. You don't. Yeah, agreed. So David, what technologies are you really looking at in the oil and gas space that get you excited? And then are you guys, um, you know, are you solely focused on upstream? Are you looking for solutions all the way through the process midstream, downstream? Yeah, I think that we're, we're looking through the entire process. And so if I, if I say what, we're, we're looking uh, in terms of the, getting to a more machine learning and more digital energy industry. We're looking at the beginning stages, which is gathering data. So that uh, in the field is IoT. Uh, maybe it's your, your drone company, for example, but it's, it's gathering data. The next is processing that data and putting, cleaning it up, making sure it's clean and uh, making sure that it's in a, a language or an ability for different data feeds to interact. Then it is taking that and developing models that you can make data-driven decision from, from unique uh, data feeds. And then it's from those models, start automating decision-making. And then from there, it's it's trying to develop unique insights and, and make better business decisions. So anything that sits in that technology stack, I'm, I'm deeply interested in. So some of that may not, at the beginning side of it, may not be as digital as a pure digital play, mm-hmm. but it contributes to that technology <clears throat> stack. Got you. And, you know, what what stage of companies are you guys looking for i mean are we looking early stage seed are we looking something more around series a um, yeah you know, something that's got a million dollars in annual revenue what are we looking at so the, the alphabet soup starts to get a little confusing but we call <laughs> it first institutional capital so you are the, the company has been created uh it's raised money from friends and family if needed uh, from angels or seeds and then we're coming in 
traditionally series A, A plus, mm-hmm. uh, for a majority of our capital going to growth and a small amount going to more uh, R&D or operations. Got you. And, you know, there's not a lot of VCs in in the space, you know, specific to specific to oil and gas. That's the opportunity. Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, you know, let's talk about you identifying the opportunity and, you know, kind this, of your thesis behind it. I'd say there's probably less than five firms that are focused on not only oil and gas, but specifically digital. There's a whole bunch who focus on OFS companies, right? But there's like you, the Cottonwood guys, Blue Bear, but Blue Bear is very specific to supply chain. Uh, and then they've done a whole lot more on the renewable side as well. Red Team's raising around right now. Yeah, but that's, yeah, that's. I think that's pretty much it. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I I think the capital providers are, are few and far between. And that's part of the opportunity as a capital allocator. There, there are two ways to improve returns for investors. The first way is to have skill. And we can talk about how that gets developed as an investor. The second way is to play, if you're playing poker, play at a table with less skilled players or le- in, in the investment space, less capital chasing deals mm-hmm. is another allergy, uh, analogy there. So yeah, I think the opportunity is is great. Many of the capital providers that some of whom you just listed are kind of moving up market. They're, they're raising larger funds. Mm-hmm. So they're just going to have trouble deploying in the space where I plan to sit. And so uh, traditional Silicon Valley doesn't really participate in this space for, I think, two primary reasons. The first is a bias against traditional energy. And the second is lack of expertise in the space. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's an investment opportunity for the time being because of that. Well, it was funny. So uh, if you guys have never been, Rice holds the Rice Alliance Energy uh, Tech Forum every single year. And it's it's grown year over year. And it's a fabulous event. Yeah, it's, it's a great event. So hats off to Rice for putting that together. Um, I've been there for at least the last five or six years. And I remember whenever I was pitching and I was trying to raise some money back in the day, uh, my question to all of the, the VCs that I ran into is everybody in here has money. Why do I want to work with you? And so what would your answer be to any of the startups that are like, man, I should, I should reach out and to you David. You put David on the hotspot. I know. This is the reverse <laughs> pitch. <laughs> um, I, I think it, it comes down to personality fits is one issue. Yeah. Uh, who do you want to get married to? Mm-hmm. Because once we're invested, we're we're married yep. until the end of this event or someone buys us out. So I think that that is, is a key metric. So there's a personality fit. There's also a valuation fit. There's a, there, where, where do we sit there? Are we, are we valuing you appropriately? And a high valuation is not always a good thing. And a low valuation isn't a good thing. An accurate one is the best. And there's the network and other interactions uh, that I think are, are important. So those factors are, are, are valuable. Uh, and I think that we, we are good at all of those. From an investor standpoint, we have family office background experience. We have EMP experience. And we're probably the only one in the space that has deep investment experience, like making investment decisions where return matters and uh, the automation of an industry. So we can help guide you and, and provide advice on automation and other things like that. A lot of first time founders are just chasing a check, right? And yep. they don't think about who the investor is. Huge mistake. Yeah. Huge mistake. Right. And I've made that mistake taking money from investors that um, I shouldn't have taken money from. It's very important to look at an investor, especially institutional VC, and say, okay, what can they provide outside of just capital? And so all those things that you just provided, whether it's experience, contacts, 
you know, help with business development, you know, just someone to go to as a sounding board. Those are all very important things. Now, from your side, what do you look for in founders? What do you look for in a team? What's important to you when assessing a uh, opportunity? I, I think what's important is deep passion for the space. And they've already demonstrated that in many ways by simply taking the risk of starting a company. Okay, so so some of that is covered. It's easier to say what I don't look for. So I don't look for multiple time funders, founders, excuse me. So I don't care if you've funded a company six times and had six successes. In fact, I, I almost would shy away from that. So, well, let's, let's dive into this a little bit because I saw some people talking about this on Twitter and especially in Silicon Valley, this is an important thing, right? Multiple time founder. Oh, they've had a previous exit, but it doesn't matter if you've had multiple successes or exits, the risk of a business is always there, right? Yeah. And so does that, should that really carry that much weight that you're a multiple time founder? I think that the experience and wisdom definitely carries weight, but should it be a end all thing? And you're saying, no, you're saying you, you don't care. There was actually a company in the news this week. I think it was called Atrium out of um, Austin, where the founder was Justin Kahn, who founded Justin.tv. Uh, oh yeah. And, and they folded. Yeah. yeah and they, they completely folded. They raised like 70 million or something. Yeah. And um, for him, it was, he, you know, he had done it multiple times. He had exited multiple times, but he went into a vertical that was completely unknown to him. Yeah. Uh, and I think they were trying to completely disrupt a space without fully understanding the space first. Uh, and it and mad respect to him, you know, yeah. for taking a chance. And, yeah, it's and not doing to say that you but, shouldn't take the chance. But right? failure is always, there's always a chance of failure, right? So. Yeah. Yeah, so we are very focused on data-driven decision-making. It's, it's our process, our investment process is very important to us, and uh, I think it's been proven out over the last 15 years. In that particular category of multi-time founders, the data does not support that they have any higher success ratios. In fact, they have lower success ratios. Mm. So I, I think that's one piece. The other is a, a quick story here. There's in the 1920s, there was a guy and he sent out 50,000 cards and it said, this stock will go up and the other 20,000, so tw half of it went to people and said, this stock will go up on such and such date. The other half said it would go down on such and such date. Stock went up. So that 25,000 people, he sent another card to and half of them said, this stock will go up, this stock will go down on such and such date. Stock went down, so he then sent a, to those that half, he sent another card and it said, same exact thing. And so what happened was he had 3,000, 5,000 people, whatever the number is, who thought that he had predicted accurately three events. Mm -hmm. And the reality is he hadn't. And so that's part of it too, is just, there's, there's a luck component to success, especially as an entrepreneur, and there's a skill component as well. So sometimes to, to confuse those two and to think that a multi-time founder is simply skilled is inaccurate. Survivorship bias, right? Correct. I mean, I tell people this all the time. Like, I can't look anyone in the eyes and tell them like, yeah, I went and quit my job in 2018. I had a wife, three kids. I quit my job to pursue something that I wanted to do and it worked out for me. I can't look someone in the eyes and tell them, hey, you should do that same exact thing because I'm very cognizant of the fact that it doesn't always work like that. You know, you never hear the stories of people failing. You only hear, you know, the stories of success, success stories. So you got to be cognizant of the fact that failure is always there. Yeah, the data shows that 60% of venture-backed companies go to zero. They return zero on capital. Mm -hmm. So if you, you need to start with that as your baseline, 60% of venture-backed companies will go to zero. We expect that in our portfolio. Yeah. And we will adjust it based on certain factors, but that's our starting point.
Yeah. So that's, that's also interesting too. If you want to dive into that a little bit, you know, when you start with the baseline, like, Hey, 60% of opportunities are going to fail in our portfolio. How do you guys, you know, I've heard a lot of angels, you know, they'll look, okay, if I can make 20, 20 placements in early seed companies and I get two that end up taking off, you know, it offsets all the losses and that's where they make their gain. You know, you can look at someone like uh, Jason Calacanis, you know, he talks about this, you know, at Uber, Robin Hood, um, rest in peace to Robin Hood. They've been going through <laughs> some hard times the last few weeks. Yeah. Um, if you're not familiar, you can look up Robin Hood, their platform has been crashing in uh, times of heavy uh, market activity over the last couple of weeks. All but- the quotes across the street were delayed on Monday, Monday morning. My trader friends, they were all delayed. Their Bloomberg terminals, everything was delayed. Yeah, so no, they were delayed. No, yeah. so Robin it wasn't Hood just crash. It wasn't Robin, just Robin Hood. No, yeah. Robin Hood crashed, though. The platform crashed. It wasn't just market delay. It was that the actual platform crashed yeah. four times over the last two weeks. Wow. So, yeah, they've been going through some hard times. But, you know, when you look at that, you know, when you look at constructing a portfolio, you know, how do you, how do you guys look at this? I mean, are you looking at, hey, we want to get 20 high quality opportunities in here and we hope, you know, for two of them to take off? Yeah. So I think traditional Silicon Valley, the way that it has evolved recently is take a shotgun approach. And part of that is because you just don't know which one's going to be successful. And so you have one success out of a hundred, then that pays for the entire portfolio and gives you your returns at a thousand times X at an Uber, because something like 5% of all funded companies are the ones that end up doing well. So the one way to do that is to just take a shot in all of them. Mm-hmm. What we've done and part of the reason why uh, we're a focused company is that we've said, okay, let's look at some sector opportunities. And we think that the opportunity is best in the traditional energy sector for venture capital. Okay. So we are going basically in, in one sense, we're short rest of venture capital and long specific sector opportunities. I think there are other opportunities in other sectors as well. We just think this is one of the best for the factors that I think I mentioned earlier. So we've already filtered and we think that there's a higher probability of success here. Um, these don't, and we don't expect them to be home runs. None of these are going to be thousand X returns. In fact, in our analysis, we cap them at 15 times return. Mm-hmm. So that way we can't make bets like traditional Silicon Valley right now is making Pascal wager type bets where the payout is so huge that you can justify anything at the beginning. Yeah. And so that's one of the the ways that we're we're looking at things. So and that model is also falling apart yeah. right now too. I mean, look the the pumping up private companies and then dumping on the public market via IPO is dried up just it's, now. It's dried up. It's not working. Yeah. And so how do you you know you There's can't actually been a, a bunch of companies that have actually lowered their IPO ex- expectations by like three quarters. Well, you got to. Yeah. So <laughs> so for to. us, valuation matters. Uh, probability of success matters. And so we will have a slightly more concentrated portfolio of call it 15 to 18 companies. We've reserved a large percentage of our fund for follow on investment. So those that we think are most likely given to succeed, given the timing of needing to to deploy that capital, we will uh, invest in them. And that's how we think that we can add additional portfolio alpha. Gotcha. So, you know, moving into 2020, obviously a lot of things have changed over the last few days with pricing, but what are you most excited to see in this space in terms of technology? You know, is there anything that like really kind of drives you that gets you excited? 
try not to be excited. So as an investor, it's best not to be. Um, <laughs> you got you to be level-headed, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think, uh, so, so the pricing environment creates stress. And through stress is when innovation gets adopted. And so I think that I'm excited for the digital space looking out 10 years. Yeah. And I think the opportunities over the next three to five years are going to be great. Yeah. And this industry is going to look completely different 10 years from now. And there are a number of factors at play for that. And, and, but the main one is price. The other is balance sheets and, and capital structure. You're going to have, you're going to see some restructuring. You're going to see some consolidation. And I think that those companies that adopt a more digital mentality are going to really thrive. And suddenly there's going to be a lot of aggressive following. So we, we sat down with uh, Alan Gilmer and Mark Bohorich to, to dive deep into uh, Inveris' acquisition of Q Engineering a few weeks ago. And so one of the things that we dove into was that whenever I first came into the space seven, eight years ago, not many people were really actually exiting because there was really no path for them to exit. And that's really changed with Inveris kind of becoming this big behemoth, a lot of money from Genstar backing them. And now they've made a ton of acquisitions over the past few years. How are you guys thinking about the acquisition landscape for exits for potential uh, portfolio companies? Yeah, great question. And something that changes on a daily or a quarterly basis. So that, that's one exit, right? Is mm-hmm. the private equity company that comes in, provides capital to whatever drilling info and says, go acquire these at four times revenue. The public market's paying seven times revenue. And that's basically what they're doing uh, because they've changed their name. They've rebranded. They're going public here in the next 12 to 24 months, I assume, is the plan. Mm-hmm. And so that's one exit. Uh, another exit is private equity companies that need these for their portfolio, these companies for their portfolio companies, because these offer, these companies eventually offer a strategic advantage. Um, the next is some of these companies get rolled up. Uh, someone creates a private equity entity to simply buy these. The third is the oil field service companies, which I think are less probable. The final or one of the final is um, uh, public markets, which I, I think is a lower probability, but we'll see where it ends up. And then there's one, I guess, final is that EMP companies possibly will buy these uh, these companies because they do. Some of them will offer a strategic advantage. Imagine if they should say ambient is, is hugely profitable for a company. If you have thousands of wells, why wouldn't you just go buy them up and keep the product for yourself as a major yeah. strategic advantage? And suddenly you're producing 20, 30% more in your wells. It's really interesting, all those, all those points, because I look at OFS and I look at what Weatherford's doing. And Weatherford has some software that it's actually very impressive that I would not expect Weatherford to produce. Shout and, out to Minoj. <laughs> yeah, shout out to Minoj over there at Weatherford. And I look at what they're doing and, you know, they sell, they sell all their pressure pumping units in 2017, really start scaling back their traditional oil field services. And it's really almost, you know, they've got automated casing crews to where you only have to send out one guy to a offshore unit instead of 10. And it's really like they're becoming a digital service company. And so it's, I've always thought about that. I'm like, would it make sense for an OFS company to start acquiring digital technologies and position themselves as a digital tech service company? Absolutely. I think it's, I think it's, it's very, very smart to do so. I think everybody's kind of posturing to say they're doing the same thing. Like Slumberger has been saying they're going to, they're going to be a digital service company over the last yeah, year. Yeah. But the thing is like Slumberger's, I'm, the, I'm talking some smaller players here. Yeah. yeah the Slumberger's of the world, they're probably not going to be digital innovators in yep. the space. It's just, there, there's just too much sunk cost and culture and uh, uh, historical legacy in other spaces. And, and this week, oil field services, the traditional Schlumberger business model, where most of the revenue comes from, 
is correlated with production. Okay, so you're you're going out, you're drilling wells. Digital services is not correlated with production and drilling wells for the most part. Mm-hmm. So in fact, I think they're slightly negatively correlated to commodity price and drilling activity, depending on the technology. So I, I think there's just there's too many issues for those majors to adopt all of this technology. So they'll, they'll try and buy some, but it, it won't be a core piece of their business to move revenue. These these digital technology companies have revenue, call it sub thirty million dollars. That doesn't move the needle for anyone at Schlumberger. Yep. Yeah. And I don't know if you guys saw, but Barclays came out with an eighty page report focusing on the big three in in oil field services. And it's 80 pages long, and it says that the space is going to evolve to uh, a $5 billion of revenue today to $30 billion of revenue next within five years. They think it'll result in $3 a barrel of margin improvement with over $150 billion in savings to the EMP companies. So we think they might be even underestimating that, but it's a five-year prediction. Yeah. This isn't even a decade prediction. There's a major step change that's going to occur here. Yeah, absolutely. And back to the point, you know, of EMPs being a potential acquisition um, target. I thought about that a lot too, and it makes so much sense. Just like you said, if Ambient's producing all this value for an EMP, why would the EMP not just acquire them? But I think that comes back to you look at the tech company and they say, well, our ceiling is way higher than what this EMP can afford. You know, say that the EMP, I don't know, let's just throw out some numbers. You know, any EMP is like, hey, you know, we'll acquire you for $20 million. But this tech company thinks, oh, we think that we can scale this to $100 million over the next three years. So then you have that that opportunity cost component that goes into it as well. So does it make sense for a tech company to sell out to an EMP or try to capture the market as a whole? So you have those those variables too. And it makes it kind of a complex situation, but I mean, it make perfect sense for an EMP to go that route and acquire people. I just don't know if it's realistic. Yeah, it may not be, but I think one of the largest EMP companies is yet to be founded and it's going to be a digital focused company. I agree. And it's going to acquire assets uh, that are distressed and it's going to operate them with 50% less headcount and uh, have far more production. So let's get into a little bit of a controversial topic. You know, we've (laughs) said that most innovation is probably going to come from within the industry, uh, as opposed to people from Silicon Valley coming in, bringing technology uh, here and in a completely disruptive space. David's one of these guys. David was in oil and gas. I mean, you know, he came from financial markets. So yeah. Yeah, And then I had had five years of EMP experience. Yeah. Yeah. But you're right. Yeah, so I think where Jake's going with the question is, you know, from your your point of view, do you think a lot of digital solutions and oil and gas are going to come from the Silicon Valley types, or are they going to come from the oil and gas types that build a solution? And, and there's always, just to preface, there's always exceptions to the rule. There yeah. are some very, very <laughs> exceptional Silicon Valley companies that have come in and done some great things. But I'm curious in your take on, on what you think the next five years is going to look like. So I think it depends on the technology. So if it's huge scale technology, say cloud computing, that kind of thing, flex computing, it's coming from Silicon Valley. Yeah. Uh, it just is. The other is specific uh, uh, applications to ENP will probably come from within. Uh, there are a couple of reasons for that. Uh, the first is that in 2015, a large percentage of the employees or a good percent were, were let go. And they had two choices, go to Starbucks or start a company. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of them started companies and we saw a lot of them numerically, a lot of companies come out of that, that disruption. Uh, so I think that's where they will come. 
The other is uh, ENP is a unique culture. And so selling into ENP requires some knowledge of that culture. I will say this though. Most industries, and ENP falls into this category, think that no one from outside of their industry can disrupt them. Yeah. And that is wrong. Yep. So if you think that Silicon Valley isn't going to come after it if there's enough capital there or enough opportunity there, I think you're wrong. It may take them a little longer to gain and get, get up to speed, but they will come. It's a good answer. I like it. So, David, before we wrap this up, if startups are listening and they want to reach out to you, they want to find you, how can they, how can they get in contact with you? How can they send you their pitch? Yeah, I, I'm on LinkedIn. We have a website. Um, I'm happy to give out my email. What's the, what's the uh, website? It's ascentev.com. It's, okay, so ascentev.com. We'll there's have- an info at ascentev.com, and my email is dforsberg at uh, ascentev.com. Okay, awesome. So we'll include all that information in the show notes. So if you want to reach out to David, uh, feel more uh, than welcome to bombard his email with uh please pitch, do pitch decks so yeah increases deal flow ideas so. come from all places Wait, absolutely one more, one more controversial question because we've been talking about this <laughs> yeah i love them one more <laughs> it seems that in silicon valley for so long all the vcs out there were saying your pitch deck should be like less than 10 slides oh yeah what is your opinion on that do you like mm. yeah do you, do you want a pitch deck that's 10 slides or do you want a full-on business plan so my pitch deck is 27 slides. So if I say I want 10, I'm kind of <laughs> You're being a hypocrite. Yeah. Um, my thought is, is that you need to have the appropriate size deck for the complexity of the subject you're covering. Okay. And Silicon Valley's behavior as a VC is to go over things very, very quickly. You have 30 minutes to, to, of our time. We're going to review it then. So if you don't grab us with a 10 slide deck, we're moving on. And and that's because they're looking much more broadly they'll take it from any take an idea from any industry as an industry focused fund we have a little bit more um expertise and focus to review larger decks so i guess that's my general response the appropriate number i which 100 agree with yeah. you great great question and great answer yeah i like both of them all right guys so go check out david go check out ascent energy vendors he actually has a really great newsletter uh that i actually read this morning that you i saw that come out. through this morning yeah. i was like this is a good newsletter How's no, it's a good newsletter. so go to where, where do they subscribe on the website yeah you can subscribe on the website and okay. I, I will add you uh it goes out to a number of people and uh it's more just general thoughts um and we try to highlight at least one energy tech company but yeah no i appreciate it cool yeah so go check that out guys uh hope you enjoyed the episode this was a lot of fun for me we haven't had any vcs in a while uh so looking to do a whole lot more than this you guys know who you are who've been dodging me i'm gonna get you guys eventually (laughs) uh so we'll catch you guys on the next episode